Hey folks, attorney Andrew Branca here for Law of Self-Defense. Yesterday was the fourth day of testimony in the murder trial of Curtis Reeves, the retired Tampa SWAT captain who shot and killed Chad Olson in a local movie theater in January 2014 after the two men had a verbal altercation that became physical. Today, the state moved through three more witnesses, which proved to be their last, before arresting their case-in-chief. The defense then moved for a judgment of acquittal, a routine motion in criminal cases at this point, which was as routinely denied by the judge. Today, the defense will begin to present its case-in-chief to the jury for the first time. Before we jump into things, I do want to mention the sponsor of today's content, that is CCW Safe, a provider of legal service memberships, what many people mistakenly call self-defense insurance. In effect, CCW Safe promises to cover their members' legal expenses of the members involved in a use of force event, and those expenses start big and get bigger fast, folks. In a killing case where you've had to kill someone in self-defense and find yourself charged with murder or manslaughter, it's not unusual to spend as much as $200,000, sometimes more, before you even get to trial. So unless you have that kind of money stuffed in a mattress, just in case you are compelled to defend yourself or your family, it can be helpful to have a financial partner standing behind you to make sure you have the resources you need to fight the legal battle the way you want it fought, as if the rest of your life depends on it, because really it does. I've looked at all the companies that offer these types of services, and I found that CCW Safe is by far the best fit for me. I'm personally a member. My wife, Emily, is personally a member. Whether they're the best fit for you is something only you can decide, but I do urge you to take a look at what they have to offer by pointing your browser at lawofselfdefense.com slash ccwsafe. And if you do decide to become a member, you can save 10% off that membership using the discount code LOSD10. That's LOSD for Law of Self-Defense and the number 10 at that URL, lawofselfdefense.com slash ccwsafe. Also, today for the fifth day of trial in the Curtis Reeves case, we will be live streaming analysis and commentary over at Rakita Law's YouTube channel. You'll be able to find today's live show for the fifth day of this trial at lawofselfdefense.com slash popcorn five. That's popcorn and the number five. So the first witness of yesterday was the continued testimony of then homicide detective Alan Proctor, who was the lead investigator on this case. Proctor had been subject to direct questioning by the state the prior day, which testimony included the two recorded interviews he'd done of Reeves immediately following the shooting. You can find all this in yesterday's coverage of the trial at lawofselfdefense.com slash popcorn. Yesterday, Proctor was subject to cross-examination by the defense, specifically by lead counsel Richard Escobar, and that cross can only be described as a brutal experience. Escobar repeatedly compelled Proctor to concede that he had violated this and that investigative policy, that he had failed to handle this and that evidence correctly, and most painfully, that he had failed to gather even the most minimal evidence required to assess whether Reeves' claim of self-defense might have been sufficiently reasonable to prevent a conclusion of probable cause to arrest Reeves on the charge of second-degree murder. Now, Florida, where this shooting occurred, is among a few states that have a specific statutory provision that prohibits the police from making an arrest in the case of claim self-defense unless they have determined that the self-defense claim sufficiently lacks merit that probable cause exists for an arrest despite the claim of self-defense. In other words, that prior to arrest, 
the investigative officer is supposed to determine both whether probable cause exists with respect to the elements of a crime of violence for which the suspect could be arrested, and also whether probable cause exists to believe that the purported crime of violence was actually an act of self-defense. Here's that statutory language drawn from Florida's Self-Defense Immunity Statute 776032, which is, of course, linked in the text version of today's content. Quote, A law enforcement agency may use standard procedures for investigating the use or threatened use of force as described in the self-defense law, but the agency may not arrest the person for using or threatening to use force unless it determines that there is probable cause that the force that was used or threatened was unlawful, close quote. Now, as a matter of typical investigatory practice, police generally only do the first of those two steps. They determine whether probable cause exists with respect to a possible crime of violence without also assessing the claim of self-defense. If probable cause exists for the crime, they make the arrest and leave self-defense to be argued further down the criminal justice pipeline. Naturally, that means considerable inconvenience, expense, and legal risk for a suspect whose use of force was, in fact, and law, genuine self-defense. The Florida legislature and some other states who have adopted similar provisions are seeking to avoid this unnecessary inconvenience, expense, and legal risk in cases of genuine self-defense by having investigative officers consider self-defense as a legal justification prior to making an arrest in the first place. Proctor took few of the investigative steps available to him on the scene that would have allowed him to evaluate Ree's claim of self-defense in the moment. Indeed, he never even glanced at the scene of the shooting itself to gather a sense of whether Ree's claim of self-defense would appear reasonable given the physical circumstances of that scene. And remember, Proctor was the lead investigator on this case, even though this was only the second case involving self-defense that he'd ever worked as a homicide detective, a fact he was also obliged to concede to the defense on cross-examination. In short, it was a thoroughly humiliating cross-examination of Proctor, almost brutal to watch over its more than two and a half hour length. And like all of yesterday's testimony and argument, video of it is embedded in the text version of today's content. The final two state witnesses of the state's case in chief following homicide, then homicide detective Alan Proctor, were two more eyewitnesses who were patrons in the theater along with Reeves when the confrontation that would result in the death of Olson occurred. These two witnesses shared in common that they would testify that Reeves had said something to the effect of throw popcorn in my face, will you? Around the time of the fatal shot, suggesting that the shooting was one of malice rather than self-defense. And as such, this was some of the more dangerous testimony for the defense. The first of these eyewitnesses was Mark Turner, a retired Air Force intelligence officer. As has often been the case with the state theater eyewitnesses, he came across on direct as providing honest testimony, but then was substantively impeached on cross-examination by contrary statements made under oath in earlier depositions or in the 2017 self-defense immunity hearing. In the case of many of the prior theater eyewitnesses, their impeachment on cross was strongly resisted. Uh, reinforcing the perception of an intentional bias against the defense. I didn't get this sense from Turner, who mostly seemed willing to concede that this or that current testimony was inconsistent with some prior statement without taking it personally when this was pointed out to him. 
Indeed, this appeared to be a rare misstep of the defense on cross-examination, with lead defense counsel Richard Escobar appearing to come at Turner much more aggressively on cross-examination than frankly seemed appropriate. Yes, Turner's testimony about throw popcorn on my face, will you, is damaging to the defense. But there exist more subtle means of impeaching such recollection than suggesting the witness is simply being untruthful. After all, memories may change over time. After making many retellings to others, after all, the fish never gets smaller. And after reading many accounts of others, maybe mistaken accounts, there are innocent reasons for why a witness may mistakenly recall an event or prior testimony. It would perhaps have been better for Escobar to take a gentler approach with this witness and still effectively impeach his arguably mistaken recollection on this point. The final witness for the state was another theater eyewitness, one Derek Friedhoff, a nurse. Friedhoff appeared substantially younger than pretty much every other witness. He was also the only witness to wear a face mask for the duration of his testimony. Also, notably, Friedhoff had attempted to provide CPR to the fatally wounded Olsen on the scene. Well, he did provide CPR, it just was not effective. Um, and this is conduct for which he would later receive a citizen's award in the form of a plaque from the state. As did witness Turner, Friedhoff would also testify that Reeves has said words to the effect of, throw popcorn in my face, will you, around the time of the shooting. Unlike Turner, Friedhoff did come across as more substantively biased against the defense in this case. And notably, it was defense counsel Dino Michaels, the second chair, who conducted cross-examination of Friedhoff, and he did indeed take a much gentler approach with Friedhoff than Escobar had with Turner, and to good effect. Right up to the last question of the defense cross, that is, where defense counsel Michael suggested that perhaps Friedhoff was biased in his testimony because of the plaque he had received for attempting to save Olson's life. That is, that Friedhoff's testimony had in some manner been bought by having been treated as a hero by the state. This was a rare misstep by defense counsel Michael's well, if we exclude his train wreck of an opening statement. And it makes me wonder if this particular issue was suggested to him by lead counsel Escobar. In any case, it came across as rather ridiculous, a characteristic the state would exploit in a brief redirect of Friedhoff. At that point, the state was all done with its witnesses. It rested its case in chief, after which the defense motioned for a judgment of acquittal essentially that all the charges should be dismissed at this point. Such a motion is routinely made once the state rests its criminal case and is as routinely denied by the court. So it's no surprise it was denied here as well. In effect, the motion for a JOA requires the judge to look at all the evidence in the light most favorable to the state. Wherever evidence is ambiguous or contested, it is presumed for this purpose, the state's version is correct. And to acquit the defendant by order of the court only if a jury seeing the evidence in that light, most favorable to the prosecution, could not reasonably come to a verdict of guilty. And even minimally competent prosecution will ensure that there's at least some scintilla of evidence on each of the criminal elements sufficient to meet this standard and avoid a judgment on acquittal. Here, lead defense counsel Richard Escobar made a rather novel argument 
that it was the state itself that had introduced evidence of self-defense in the form of the recorded video interviews of Reeves in which he claimed self-defense, and that therefore the burden was immediately on the state to have introduced at least some evidence counter to self-defense prior to resting, and Escobar claimed they had failed to do so. Because the state had failed to rebut self-defense in the view of the defense, after having raised the defense themselves in their case in chief, Defendant Reeves was entitled to the requested JOA. Sadly, here the legal analysis by the state responding to this motion to have it denied, and by Judge Barthel in denying the motion, was remarkably weak and off point. The, the proper legal analysis would have been to consider each of the required legal elements of Reeves' claim of self-defense, the elements of innocence, imminence, proportionality, and reasonableness, noting that the state need rebut only one of these in order for the question of self-defense to avoid JOA and be properly within the province of the jury, and then pointing out where the state's case-in-chief had done precisely that. Recall, at this point, the state does not need compelling evidence rebutting any single required element of self-defense. It needs essentially any scintilla of evidence doing so. After all, the evidence has to be looked at in the light most favorable to the state. And such evidence was raised with respect to the elements of imminence. The state argued the fight was over when the shot was fired. Proportionality, the state argued whatever threat Olson posed was merely non-deadly in nature. And reasonableness, the state argued that Reeves' perceptions, decisions, actions were not objectively reasonable. The evidence on the element of innocence was thinner on the ground, but as noted, it's not necessary. The state doesn't have to disprove every element of self-defense, only any one required element. Instead, here in arguing against the motion for judgment on acquittal, the state made the kind of loosey-goosey argument against JOA that they make in essentially every criminal trial and that admittedly works in essentially every criminal trial, uh, where the judge, by the way, is always primed to reject the motion for JOA, 99.99% are rejected, and the state's approach indeed worked here. Uh, judge Barthel's explanation for why she denied the JOA was also pretty loosey-goosey and not founded on what I would consider a robust legal analysis, but regardless, we ended up at the same endpoint anyone experienced in criminal law would anticipate the denial of the defense motion of the JOA. And like all the witness testimony, the argument around this judgment of acquittal is embedded in the text version of today's content. With that, the court today turns to the defense case in chief. Over the next several days, we can expect testimony from the defendant, Curtis Reeves himself, uh, which ought to be consistent with his lengthy, roughly two-and-a-half-hour testimony uh, that he provided at his 2017 self-defense immunity trial. We're also likely to hear from Vivian Reeves, the wife of the defendant and witness to the shooting, as well as from a bevy of expert witnesses and others. Now, as all of you know, I don't predict verdicts. All I can do with confidence is assess what a just verdict ought to be when considered within the confines of the relevant law and evidence. Juries, however, are dangerous and unpredictable creatures. In other words, they're human beings. And daring to predict what an anonymous jury might do is too hazardous for my taste. Evaluating a theoretical verdict based solely on law and evidence, however, I have to come down solidly on the side of not guilty. Is there ambiguity in Reeves' claim of self-defense? For sure. And if the legal threshold here were preponderance of the evidence, I could see a rational jury falling on either side of the question, essentially a coin toss. 
But the legal standard at trial is not a mere preponderance of the evidence. At trial, the state is obliged to disprove self-defense beyond a reasonable doubt, beyond any ambiguity, in a manner precisely opposite to that described for a motion for a judgment of acquittal, where all the evidence is looked at in the light most favorable to the state. When a verdict is considered, the defense is presumed innocent. And in a legal schema in which the defendant, Curtis Rees, is presumed innocent until self-defense has been disproven beyond a reasonable doubt, I don't see the state as having met that burden at the point it rested its case in chief, which ought to be the anticipated high point of the state's legal argument and evidence. From here, the state's position can be expected only to degrade further as the defense has the opportunity to present its own legal arguments and evidence in the defense case in chief. Okay, folks, that's all I have for you for the moment. Uh, remember, we will be providing live analysis and commentary on this case today over at Rakita Law. You can find that live stream at lawofselfdefense.com slash popcorn5. That's popcorn with the number five. Until then, remember, if you carry a gun, so you're hard to kill. That's why I carry a gun, so I am hard to kill, so my family is hard to kill. You also owe it to yourself and your family to make sure you know the law, so you're hard to convict. Until next time, I remain Attorney Andrew Branca for Law of Self-Defense. Stay safe. <laughs>